All right. Hello, everyone. Demetrius Gelatis here. And with me, we've got back Mr. Angle. How are you doing, Jesse? Pretty good. Thanks for having me back. Yes. Well, appreciate the comments uh, from our last podcast. You know, you've, you've made Jesse feel very welcome, very safe. Um, so we appreciate that. So fortunately, uh, he's, he's being willing to continue to play a role. So what do we have this week? Uh, we are going to take some listener questions about handling fatigue during tournaments. We are going to take a, a good question about uh, best advice for players at different levels. And we're going to hear that from both my perspective and from Jesse's. And then we're going to have a, our conversation uh, topic is going to be kind of a little bit about pool ethics um, and some interesting situations and some interesting debates that come up about some of the different topics um, in, in competitive pool. And so that's what we'll, uh, we'll talk about from there. And then we're, of course, going to kick off a road story at some point. In fact, I'm probably going to open with it. But first, I've got to call everyone's attention. I got to plug MN Pool Bootcamp. So if you aren't familiar with this, this is your first podcast, uh, I teach pool in a, in a kind of a cool way. I do three-day pool boot camps. And by doing three days, it's not a traditional lesson where somebody comes and, you know, you look at their game and you twist their stance around or you give them a different bridge or you show them a drill and wish them well, wish them well. It's like, no, we're, we do more of a comprehensive, like, you know, I get to know you, your background, where you've come from, where you're at, where you're trying to get. Uh, we look at some of the things that have worked or haven't worked. We looked at how much you play, how much you compete, what your resources are to put in. And I, and I watch you play and hit balls and see where you're strong and where you're struggling. And then we just kind of mind meld and I kind of get in your shoes and I have three days to just share your journey and say, Hey, what's, you know, what are some things that we could do with the resources you have and the opportunities you have to, uh, to build on your strengths, you know, add some, you know, shore up some weaknesses, put together, put together a game that can take you where you want to go. Uh, what, what works really well is that it's not just me showing some stuff and wishing you well with it by having three days together we actually do the stuff side by side so that you can actually see growth. And uh, by the time you leave, you should be playing a different level of game as well as having a pretty clear idea of what to continue uh, to keep going. So it's just full, I guess, full service side by side with uh, with a pretty passionate and uh, serious player. So because it's three days, the other cool part is uh, regardless of where you live, I'm in Minnesota, but most of, you know, 80, 90% of the people that work with me fly here. I pick them up at the airport. They stay at my house. So just trying to, uh, you know, I've got booked into the beginning part of 2022. Um, I've got one opening in February at this moment, a couple in March. And so if you're starting to take a look at what your 2022 looks like uh, for pool, give me a shout. I'm at mnpoolbootcamp.com. MN is for Minnesota. So mnpoolbootcamp.com. All right. And thanks to all those that have reached out. I've had a lot of people reach out and it's been a great 2021 and uh, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you for, for making that possible. So, all right, Jesse, why don't we start off with a listener question? Uh, someone, you know, was kind of new to playing some, you know, a lot of tournaments run pretty aggressive schedules and uh, you know, it's not uncommon to, to play real late at night and play matches all day. Um, it's tiring. And uh, I don't know about you, but I don't play as well when I'm really, really tired as I do when I'm bright eyed and bushy tail. So what advice would you have for someone that wants to know 
how to handle that in a tournament? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, for me, I always felt that there was definitely different levels of that. There was a point of no return where, you know, like we have a local tournaments like MPA tournaments. I remember playing some of those until, gosh, must have been like four in the morning where when you're playing, you know, or I guess when you're awake for like 16, 18 hours, you start to like really hit a, hit a wall, no matter caffeine's not going to help. I mean, personally, I'm not a player who's using the other stuff, but I know <laughs> that that might be a common thing in pool. Um, but yeah, I mean, so when you hit that spot, you know, the only thing I could recommend when you're that tired is, you know, really just try to slow down and like make sure that you're, you're still making like solid fundamental decisions. Um, Cause I know that you can get very lazy when, when the fatigue starts to kick in. Um, and then, you know, there's like just the general like late nights or yeah, you're not like feeling super alert. Uh, same advice. Uh, the only other thing I would add is that, you know, if you're a very social person, that's like in between matches, you're always catching up with the other players or whatever, depending on where your tournament's at, I would probably dial down from that a little bit more and just go like, find a spot to chill. If you like to listen to some music, I don't know, throw on like a podcast or whatever, but anything to just not burn up unnecessary energy. I mean, I know talking doesn't seem like it would, but you know, if you're engaged in conversation, you can definitely, uh, you know, you, I, just my opinion, you can use up uh, too much unnecessary energy. So that's the best I got for you. Is that why you never talked to me at the tournaments? We drove together, man. You just stonewalled me. Why yeah, do you gotta yeah. be that way? Well, you know, <laughs> well, that, yeah, that, that's part of it too. Like, you know, for me, I've always found that if I'm not like, you know, engaged in like serious conversation at all moments, like it's just a lot easier to stay like in the zone. And that, you know, I mean, that does carry over into, uh, well, every part, every other match. Right. So I, I like to just kind of keep to myself for the most part and not like really, you know, throw off the momentum of how I'm doing the tournament, but yeah, let's. Yeah. And you know, one thing that I learned from you and I think that, uh, you know, you kind of told me the first part of your answer. I remember asking you this question a few years ago and you, you told me that you just have to uh, kind of, you told me kind of to slow down and be a little bit deliberate with my decisions and with my execution. Um, I'm not sure if those were your exact words, but that was my, you know, that's how I interpreted it. And um, one thing that I've seen happen for me is that when I'm, when I'm really, really tired, I, I can break down in ways that are very surprising in ways that I didn't think I could break down. I could miss balls that I didn't think I could miss. You know, I'm worried about playing shape or I'm thinking about the next shot. And all of a sudden, so I hear the sound of a ball rattling. And I'm like, how did that ball not go in? Where I just take my eye off the ball or I take things for granted. And I've learned that when I'm really tired, I have to not take anything for granted. I and mean, that's probably always good advice. But like when I'm really tired, I have to just go shot by shot and, and really rely on those processes, make a good decision, pick my shot connect and then just treat each single shot like it's important because I can't just freewheel around the table when I'm super tired it's just stuff that starts going sideways so maybe there's some other people that are the opposite which is they're like rhythm players and maybe they use a lot of rhythm to flow through but for me I have to treat each shot like it's missable um, even more than normal yeah and one more thing I'll add is not to go on much of a tangent but Personal belief, I do think that breathing is a very critical part in your uh, consistency with pool. And especially as you get, you know, more tired, I do believe that you can maybe be a little bit lazier there or, you know, not focusing on like keeping that a uh, consistent thing. So I would say when I get tired, 
I definitely walk around the table more. And while I'm doing that, I make sure to like take some deep breaths and, and make sure that that feels consistent as I'm breathing. And that sort of all like wraps into it. Um, yeah, yeah. And probably a good, a good dose of oxygen kind of helps in those spots. Uh, the other thing I was going to mention is that I, um, I, I like uh, when Jesse was saying, you know, just find something quiet, pop in a podcast. One thing that I really like is, um, you know, I have my headphones with my cell phone and whether I have just a few minutes or whatever I have any time between matches, uh, I like kind of either duck it out in my car or if I don't have a lot of time and I just want to sit down in a chair, I might just listen to something that's really, uh, and for me, um, I, I think something that quiets your mind can really be good. So like I have a personalized hypnosis uh, recording that I went to a hypnotist for five sessions and the fifth session, they did a personalized recording for me. That was really, really cool. And when I listen to that, it just, it's really, really refreshing to where when I come back out, it's like, I, my mind has just kind of come to a still refreshed, present, calm. And I just feel like I just took a really good power nap. And, and at times when I feel like I'm just overtired where you're so tired you can't even get tired or when you're under pressure and your mind is spinning and it just feels like it just feels like it's not still and calm uh and you just feel like the idea that you're going to close your eyes is almost impossible you know that type of guided visualization is really good so i can't share the the hypnosis thing i've got but one that i really like that's on youtube if you go to neil stan uh, neil stan has a f-e-i-j-e-n um if you look up his channel he's got a visualization exercise that's probably like 16 minutes long and so that might be a good one if you uh want to cue that one up and listen to it between matches late at night i think that you might find that being very refreshing so just if you have the time use the time if you don't you don't yeah another side note to that too like i do happen to know that uh he's worked a lot with that elliot Rowe. you know are you familiar with him no so i know that he was uh i don't know if any other pool players from europe have worked with him but he's like basically a professional mindset coach I know he's worked with some of the top poker players in the world. Like he's very, very good at what he does. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, maybe uh, look into some of his material as well. Yeah. And Neil's fan has like a, that uh, mental game uh, course that you can work through as well. Uh, he sells that. So check out his channel. Neil's fan is pretty awesome. So, all right. So now um, let's hope that you're not all tired right now. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, what's our next thing? So let's live it enough. I'm going to tell a little story. We're going to, we're going to skip ahead. We're going to tell a funny, this is just something that happened tonight. That was kind of fun. So Jesse Engel came over and we were going to do this podcast, but we wanted to hit a few balls. So we decided, I, I think I called the format. I said, what we're going to do, we're going to play the 10 ball ghost two races to four. And if we happen to split sets, we're going to play a shootout against the ghost, like one of those predator events. Uh, we wanted the uh, the excitement, you know, for the for the fans, the imagine the ghost fans. So we uh, we didn't really get off to a rocket start, did we, Jesse? Yeah, you know, <laughs> kind of across the finish line. We 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 hit a few bumpy rows. Yeah, so we we started off with the first race to four, and I think we lost four to one. And um, I was I was not performing that well, and things were kind of going sideways and we were snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. And so we went down in flames and we're down four. So we lost the first set. So then the second set was much, much worse. We were down three, nothing. And uh, I don't know, man, it's a funny game. You'd think that anyway, it's just funny how, how quick it can happen when you're just making mistakes and a little off. And 
you know, anyway, so then uh, we're down three, nothing. And of course, you know, if we had just lost four, nothing, then we would not be discussing this on the podcast. So here's what happens is we come back and win four in a row, like a, like a boss. And then we get to the playoff. Now, how do you do a shootout against the 10 ball ghost? Well, here's how you do it is you set up the shot and I flipped a coin to see if the ghost shot at the spot of that challenge shot first, or if we did, for those that don't know in this format, if it, if it goes one set a piece, then the sudden death tie break is you take four shots from the kitchen, uh, shooting a ball. That's like where the money balls racked, like three inches beyond the spot. So anyway, what we decided was that the ghost would have a 75% chance of making each shot. So we'd flip both coins. And if it came up heads, heads, then the ghost misses. If not, if there's at least one tail, then the ghost makes its shot. So we flip to see who shoots first, us or the ghost. The ghost goes first. We flip the coins. There's a tail. So we're down one nothing. But I let Jesse kick us off. And Jesse, you swish the first shot, bringing us to 1-1 with three more shots each to go. So I flip the coins for the ghost. And wouldn't you know it, it comes up heads, heads. And we're up. Look at that. Now, we, now we're in the driver's seat. The ghost choked under the pressure. So I get up and I make my shot. So now we're up two to one with uh, with two shots to go. The ghost, I flip the coins and it comes up heads, heads again. We are running good. You know what? I just, I think the pressure of us both making our shot influenced the coins. I'm sure. Okay. So I'll, I'll cut to the chase. So the ghost dogs. And so now all has to happen is if Jesse makes his next shot, we win. If not, I might, it might come down to me in the end. And Jesse started talking about how he was going to miss on purpose just to put the heat on me. And I don't know if he was joking or not, but he, he missed it. Next thing you know, the ghost flips a tail. And now, now it's two to two. And I've got the last chance. If I make this ball, we win. If not, we go to the sudden death where we're uh, even back further from like a diamond off the end rail. And I think I was negotiating that we would give the ghost a 50-50 chance on that shot. But everything slowed down. And... And I saw the edge of the ball and the pockets looked as big as Minnesota Fats' pants. And, and, the, and the, I'm trying to think of all the cliches. I was in the zone. I could see the, the measles on the cue ball. And anyway, I put the thing down and we win. So we won against the ghost in the, in the sudden death format. So anyway, this is what we do for fun around the gelatas household. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, uh, Maybe I should edit that out, but I won't. I won't. You guys get stuck. I'm sticking you guys with it. So that's my fun story for the day. That was a fun. That was a fun comeback. We were we were as down as you could be. So, all right. So now that we've livened things up for the audience, <laughs> let's let's uh let's have a conversation about general tips for pool improvement at different levels. So we're going to look at four different levels. We're going to talk about Fargo rate 400, 500. 600 and 701. We're going to talk about those four different levels. So Jesse, you've never seen this person play. All you know about them is that they're a 400 Fargo. What do you think they need to do to try to get to the next level? What should they prioritize from here? Okay, sure. So 400, that's a little bit tricky because I'm trying to, you know, put some player in that category that I might know. I don't know exactly what that speed truly is. Um, so I guess what I would say is pretty much back to like basics where, you know, you're just making sure that you have a general idea of where the cue ball's heading from your next shot. Uh, 
quite honestly, your, your pattern choice at that skill level is not going to be, you know, at the highest level. So you're, you're going to make a lot of mistakes there. But I do think more importantly at that level is that you're really paying attention to where the cue ball is going after you're hitting the ball and kind of learning that way. I mean, that's. No, I a hundred percent agree. So I think that what I think of is I, I tend to see that people have uh, generally they can improve their stroke, their tip accuracy, and their uh, and their knowledge of where the cue ball is going using the vertical axis, uh, using you know above center, below center on the cue ball. So what that means is I, I've seen a lot of people that kind of slug the balls in with center ballish type hits, where their tip accuracy isn't the best. And I call it like, they have like a directional sense. Like they understand if they cut the ball to the left, the cue ball is going to go to the right. They might have an idea that if it's going up table or bouncing across table, they might have an idea if it's going to go a long way or not so far, but they don't really have, it's not very accurate. So, but the reason, one of the reasons it's not very accurate is because they're not, their tip isn't very accurate because they've been mostly just pocketing balls with, you know, center ball, a little bit below, a little bit above. And so for these people, I really think, uh, trying to improve tip accuracy. And there's, um, so if I was to suggest a drill, uh, there's a fun one I like where you just set up a straight in shot. You practice shooting stop shots, follow shots, draw shots. And then, um, and then the kind of in-between follow where you do like the stun run through where you shoot like a nice, you want to shoot all these at the same speed. Uh, you're not varying your speed. So like if you wanted to shoot a draw shot, whatever speed you're going to use for that draw shot, use that speed for your follow shot and just lift your tip high and then shoot a stop shot with the same speed. And then when you want to use your stun run through where your cue ball just dribbles forward like a foot or two, use the same swing speed and just crawl your tip up a half of tip above center. And then the final one is like kind of like a, a punch draw where you, you don't have like a zippy draw where you just kind of maybe like a half tip below center with a nice confident swing and let the cue ball just kind of dribble its way back a diameter or two. And so anyway, if anybody's interested in seeing an example of that drill, uh, if you have questions on how to do it, just email me info at mnpoolbootcamp.com. But I think that's a good one to start learning how to get your tip accurate. From there, the other drill I'd recommend, once you have those hits, is going to like the wagon wheel. And the wagon wheel is a drill. Uh, you can find it on, on YouTube if you look up the wagon wheel, where you basically set up a slight cut shot and you practice maneuvering your cue ball on the tangent line, forward of the tangent line, and back of the tangent line, just by blending swing speed, tip, and uh, and your aim, you know, cheating the pocket a little bit on the object ball to get kind of used to directing the cue ball on different lines, uh, fudging the tangent line, things like this. So I think that working on, on tip accuracy and a calm swing, um, and kind of like Jesse said, learning where that cue ball is going to go using those techniques. I think that's pretty critical. Yeah, sums it up pretty well. Good. So now, congratulations. Now you're 500. Uh, you got all that stuff going smooth. Jesse, what next? 500. So we're talking about like the 500 pushing up towards like. Yeah, five, 540, 550. 550. Okay. Sure. So in that range, what I would say is obviously you've already paid attention to the beginning stuff um, that we mentioned for the 400s. I would say when you get to 500, now is when you really need to start paying attention to what's going wrong with your pattern play, uh, why you keep laying yourself in the same jam. So if you're playing eight ball, you know, in the last couple balls, why, why you're leaving yourself a very tough shot with 
you know, like the pattern is supposed to get easier. Um, that's the most common thing I see with, with players that, that's, you know, skill level. I mean, of course there is a lot of things to do with fundamentals and a couple other things that I plan on mentioning when we get to the higher levels that you can better fine tune because you've already improved your other more uh, obvious skills, I would say. So for the 500s, I think I'm just going to stick with mainly pattern play. Uh, and I guess we can mix in a little bit of, you know, like a more consistent and efficient uh, swing speed. Because a lot of players should be kind of graduated from the idea of just that one, like you said, kind of hard punch hit. Or if you come from the camp of being a ball roller, like by now you should have understood that, you know, there's a very efficient speed to be hitting balls at where you don't have to use, you know, a ton of swing speed, but you can get, you know, the same action on the balls with, with a relatively consistent range of speeds. Yeah. You use, you know, a good timing, meaning a soft moving cue that accelerates with good timing. It still get nice, crisp, lively action without really moving the cue too fast or any sudden movement. So, okay. So for, for, my thought on a 500, from what I've seen, you know, right around 500, there's still still too many open misses. So pocketing, uh, you know, of course, is still uh, something that has to get tighter. So I like I like a few. Uh, there's, you know, that's just practice, right? Time at the table. But the other part is, is um, I've noticed that most five, all the way up to like 540, 550 players, they don't use enough sides. But now it's interesting because Jesse was talking about eight ball patterns. So if you're playing bar table eight ball, you can work around side spin quite a bit at that level by selecting patterns that don't require it. So like pattern play is just assembling the, the cue ball tools that you have into a, like, it's like a puzzle. You look at the table, you see, you know, what, what cue ball maneuvers that you know, and then you look at how you assemble those cue ball maneuvers, you know, to run through that table. And so when you don't, when you don't have side spin, and you're using center ball cue ball maneuvers, but if you've done the wagon wheels and you've done the five hit drills and you've learned how to draw your ball and stun your ball around, uh, you can kind of like still play eight ball with kind of that starter skill set, just because eight ball allows you to pick a pattern that, so you can kind of bend the pattern to your, your shots, you know, but some of the time, but then not all of the time. And when you play nine ball or when you have more complicated, complex, patterns or you know you have breakouts or you have racks where you have to do a lot of movement or maneuver around blocker balls that's where these types of players really start struggling and I feel like one of the reasons why is because they're they're playing more of a center ball toolbox which is good for short distances um side spin only takes effect when you hit a rail so therefore side spins usually uh your your side spin maneuvers tend to be multiple rails moving your cue ball up and down table your, your center ball maneuvers tend to be holding the cue ball and maneuvering at short distances with accuracy. And so it's, I call it the short game. And I think most of eight ball is the short game, but when you, um, when you're, when you're looking at trying to get better, you've got to develop the long game, which usually involves multiple rails and side spin. So that's why I think that most 500 players and 550 players a lot of them have bad luck. They've missed too many balls because of deflection. They never really got comfortable with it. They just decided to work around it. Usually they say stuff like, oh, well, you know, the good players stay one tip away from center. What do you think of that advice, Jesse? When people say good players stay one tip away from center, what's your reaction? <laughs> I, I would say uh, 
which good players because I don't ever see those people make it to the end of the tournament. Yeah, I I don't I don't I don't I completely disagree. I think every top player I know is like comfortable on the stratosphere up up high and off to the sides of the ball and just like you know Filipinos, even like you know the Europeans that are playing pretty ABC patterns, they spin the ball. Buddy Hall, Mr. Stay One Tip Away from Center. I watch him play. He's on the edge of the ball. So I think that that's just a, an excuse people buy into because they've missed too many balls because of deflection. You have to learn the, the deflection of your shaft. Yeah. Like amazing players can make it seem that way because where they're trying to get their cue ball is so accurate that they hardly ever need to use like two tips outside for recovery shots. I mean, unless the pattern, you know, makes it where that, that has to happen. But on the bar table level, like bar table eight ball with like wide open racks, I feel like I can play that game, you know, pretty controlled where it probably looks like I, I hardly ever hit outside of center ball. But for the most part, no, that's kind of like. But when you're playing nine ball. Like, yeah, you just have to be able to use yeah, yeah all the tips English. So. And, and what I say is, you know, some people that are afraid of it, and I, I'll move on, but there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people in this camp. And even the people that use sides but probably don't use it as extreme as I do or as often as I do. So I don't like mixing. You know, people say, well, side spin makes the shot harder. Well, there's other things that make the shot harder. Distance and power make the shot harder. And so I don't like to mix all three. Like I rarely shoot with extreme side spin from like table length away on a difficult shot with a lot of power. Like I usually don't mix all of those. But if I'm sitting close to a ball and it's a fairly easy ball to pocket, and I'm using like a soft to medium speed, then I expect myself to have full range of side spin options available without really impacting my make percentage. So set up routine shots and learn to hit them with all types of, uh, all types of spin. And so if you're just learning, there's, you know, you can just set up a shot and spot it again and again and again, and just work, work around the clock. Just try it with one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, see where it goes, you know, get used to making it or, yeah. So anyway, okay, I'll move on. I've been talking about that for too long. All right. So now, now what I've noticed is that the 600 players, you know, they have most of the stun shots. They have most of the seismic shots. They have most of the tools. They're, you know, they pocket balls pretty well. I mean, 600, I'll tell you, that's a heck of a player. How do you get better from there, Jesse? 600, this is, yeah, when we when you discuss maybe talking about these different level of players, this was the one level where I think, this is probably the, the biggest thing you can do to improve. And you really need to, I'm not going to say slow down your game to the point where you're like painfully slow, but the majority of players in the 600 range that I know don't have a consistent tempo of how they, they play their game. Um, they try to get into these, I guess, in quote marks, uh, rhythms where they want to be like the, not necessarily fast and loose, but, they just feel like they're trying to catch their, their gear as it's come to be going. And I'm nodding. You can't see me, but I'm nodding. Yeah. And by now, like you have a lot of the tools that you should be able to put racks together and be a very, you know, solid, consistent player. But the, yeah, that's just gotta be the, the one thing that stands out is like the overall tempo of play. And I mean, you know, this demo because you've seen me play a ton of times and anybody who's maybe like watched videos of me play online, like I am definitely more analytical, methodical with, with how I approach the game. So you'll probably catch me walking around the table more than most people that you know. But the reason why I did that is because I realized that a lot of my errors were not coming from the lack of the knowledge or knowing exactly how to, you know, hit the ball. And like, like I, I could feel it. I could, I could visualize in my head. 
but I just wasn't consistent across the board with everything. My pre-shot routine was not, you know, as consistent as it needed to be. So part of that process for me when I was around that, that skill range was to start slowing down and like taking a better look at the table and reanalyzing how I was going to run the, the, you know, the rest of the pattern, like after every shot or two, just to make sure that I wasn't like already giving myself the, you know, the win eight balls ahead of time or, or whatever it is. Maybe it's a bad analogy, but just overall, like slowing down and making sure that you're still, your focus level is still as high as it can be and not making any silly mental errors. So. This one's interesting. So I, I think I agree with the underlying tone. So I'm not, but there's a difference between speed versus consistency and, and certain checkpoints. So let's just suppose, for example, that there is a few checkpoints you have to make on every shot. You have to figure out what the pattern you're going to play is, where you need to be, what the pitfalls are, what your best percentage is to avoid those, visualize and commit to a shot, and then address the ball, take a breath, and kind of like shift into execution mode, whatever. I'm not saying you have to do all those like deliberately or you know, uh, consciously, but let's just say that there is a five things that have to happen on every shot. Well, if you do those five things sometimes and not every time, and then sometimes you go fast and sometimes you go slow and sometimes you cut corners, then that's not going to go very well. If you do those five things on every shot at the same pace, then even if your pace is fairly quick, it doesn't look rushed and reckless. It, it just looks like quicker. But so I, I, I think that I don't know that it's necessarily about slowing down in terms of actual number of seconds at the table. I think what it's about is finding the rhythm where you knock out those things to do on every shot. So like, think about it this way, when you're playing your best, what does it look like? How, how do you go through that checklist and what does that rhythm look like? And then holding yourself to continuing to play at that rhythm and continuing to go through that checklist uh, on a routine and making it very consistent. So that's, that's the way I would interpret what Jesse's saying, because I know some people like to play a little quicker and I don't know that it's, I've seen this play out where it's not always about number of seconds at the table. It's about going through and completing that checklist. Would, does that make sense? Yeah. I, th I mean, this is why it's easier to, to be on your podcast. That's why I wouldn't, wouldn't run my own. I, I sometimes don't explain things exactly the way that I'm thinking about them. I mean, yeah, you definitely nailed it there. Um, it, it doesn't really matter. Like if you're taking 20 seconds a shot or, or 45, it's more so just make sure you're going through the steps that, that you need to, to be, you give yourself the best you know chance for the, the end result there. So if, if you're, if you're a football team, you, you're going to use all four of your huddles for four downs, you know, don't use one huddle and then just kind of wing it from there. Yeah. So. so what I've seen, and so I have a saying, maybe I've shared this on the podcast before, but I like to say it bad players treat the game like it's easy and make it hard and that good players treat the game like it's hard and keep it easy. What I've seen is when players get into that 586, 620 range, I've seen exactly like what Jesse said, where, where people want to just kind of like run the table over and freewheel. Like I see a lot of freewheeling run the table over because at this zone, people tend to be, you know, they have all the shots, they know all the shots and when they're feeling good and they're comfortable and they're in their rhythm and they're relaxed and, you know, they can make them. And so then they can run two, three, four racks. And it's like, and so they just want to get up and like find that zone where they just, everything goes in and they just kind of whack them all in. But what I've seen is, is that pattern play is what's lacking because it's, it's almost like I watched the way most of these players play and 
there's just, you know, they all want to be consistent. They all, you know, they can run three, four racks. They're like, how do I do it consistently? But I watch how they're going about it. I'm like, you can't do what you're doing right now consistently. There's, there's nobody that can make all those shots consistently. The only way to get better is to, is to play tighter cue ball and patterns to where you're not forced to come with that many recovery shots and difficult to pocket balls and difficult to execute long draws and, you know, crazy shots. And it's like, so, but, but the problem is most people don't want to do that. They just want to, they just want to free wheel around the table, run the table over. And then they just want to practice until they can just do that and make them all, all the time. And, and so at some point you're going to have to make a choice, you know, do you want to get better? Even if it's at the cost of like learning a little bit more discipline and, and basically you get a like, I like to say it this way, like when you're playing patterns, it's like you're playing scotch doubles with yourself when you're, you have the planner and you have the shooter. And I'm like, when you shoot, you have to shoot like you don't care about position. But when you plan, you have to plan like your shooting partner can't shoot at all. You have to plan like, instead of thinking, I'll just get somewhere because I'm so good, I'll figure it out. Like that is not a good mind. I think that's the mindset. If I could put the, like, what are these people thinking? I feel like they're thinking, I'm good. If I get over there, I'll just hit it that way. And if I hit it there, I can just spin it over there and I'll just pound it back there. And I mean, I'm a good enough player. Even if I have to bank, I can always bank the ball. No big deal. I just don't think that's how top players think. Top players think like I would hate to put myself there because I might not be able to make it. And if I've saddled myself with a bank shot, you know, that that's doggable. And I don't want to take that chance. How can I avoid those risks and just keep it, you know, keep things from going wrong? And how do I keep the door from cracking open that things could go wrong? And so it takes a little bit of humility and you have to treat the game like it's hard and then learn to make it easier and more consistent. And so that's a long route of saying, I think it's about pattern play. And I think it's about, being a little bit more humble and, and not just that, Hey, I can play really good and run up, know all the shots. It's like, no, let's, let's play. Like, let's plan as if you don't know all the shots and then try to shoot like you do. That's my advice. And, and that's, that's actually one of my niches. So for people in that five, 600 range, these are some of my favorite students because um, I feel like I'm, I'm capable of taking a 600 freewheeling guy that can run a lot of racks some days, but not other days. You know, these people that make, you know, they, they knock out a, a name player out of their local tournament and then make the, you know, make the money, but then just aren't steady enough to get to the pressure and the, and the uh, adversity of the last few rounds. Like those, that's my sweet spot. So give me a shout. Oh yeah. The last thing I'm going to add to that is because uh, I know we're going to step up to 700 next. Um, the other addition to that is a lot of people when they're around that 600 range, they've probably gotten there because they've been playing pretty consistently and what happens is when you get to that skill level, you maybe haven't kind of ever stepped back and really taken a closer look at your fundamentals. So there is the pre-shot routine that that's very, very important, but stroke, this is where I would say if, if you're right in that 600 range, you should really take a look at your stroke compared to some of the, you know, top professionals that have like really pure strokes. I mean, there's dozens of them out there now that, that, that hit the balls. Right. I mean, we're a couple of your favorites. Okay. So like, obviously American wise, like, like Tyler Steyer probably hits the balls as clean as you can. I mean, pretty close, you know, maybe he's not the best player in the world, but his, his fundamentals are great. Um, that Kachi, I don't know how he pronounces, you know, first name, like it's very pure. Uh, I've noticed that Alex hits the balls pretty well too. Like it's hard to debate that many people hit him more pure than that. Guys like that, where they, it's very, it's not slow, but it's just, it's just efficient. The timing's there and you can clearly tell that they're not having to do much extra work on almost any of their shots. 
So you, you won't be able to change that overnight, but at least comparing like your tempo timing and just overall delivery compared to what those guys are who probably have a similar like body build to you, like with, uh, you know, with like, you know, wingspan that, cause that, that does play into it a little bit. Um, I would say you really need to, uh, to figure out how you're going to get from where you're at as close as you can to mimicking that, because that that's going to be a huge part of how you're going to be able to get, you know, if you do plan on getting close to 700, that's the, the large difference between like a guy who's low 700s to 750, 770, 780 is just the ability to deliver that cue that much better. Yeah. One of my favorites is Samin Chen. I think she, her, her technique is just amazing. So, okay, great. Um, so now is the 700. Yeah, it's tough. Um, you know, it starts getting real tough to get better. What do you, what would you say to somebody that plays 700 that wants to see improvement at this stage in their career? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've mentioned a lot of things. Um, I would say if you're right, if you're just tapping over the 700 mark, probably the best way for you to get better from here is to just fly here and play me $500 sets. <laughs> oh, <I'm just> <laughs> uh, all right. All right. Uh, uh. No, if you're right around 700, like it's, <laughs> I had to. Okay. Um, you probably, I mean, it's, there, there is still a range of, of, of differences there with where your knowledge is at, but I'm going to assume that most players who are over 700 have a pretty good idea of how the table works. Like th there's not too many uh, pattern, I don't know, like pattern theories or things about that cue ball that they really don't quite understand at this point. Uh, maybe some very specific shots, but, but overall you should have a good sense of it. So again, it's, it's probably just going back and figuring out where your leaps are in your game. What, like, when do you fail mid game or, or, or what gets you into trouble and fine tuning those areas? It's yeah. I mean, that, that just seems like the, the best thing I can offer. I mean, there's no specific one thing at that level. I mean, you could say that uh, at this point, you know, now you're, you're dealing with much higher level of play typically. So yes, there's things like the whole, the whole part of like the kicking game, like that's extremely important at this level. And that does make a, a world of difference, you know, at anybody that's up above 700, like that makes a huge difference because giving up ball in hand or this day and age, getting a hit, but leaving a, you know, a long shot where the cue ball is six inches off the rail. It's almost like giving up ball in hand to, to the top players. So you may as well uh, just kind of give up the game from there, but, um, but yeah, that, that's really important. So that's the best I got, man. You just kind of have to like, you know, kind of run back through all your, your areas of your game and make sure you're fine tuning everything. So, yeah. I, so I think that what's challenging is it's, it's very individual. Like I know 700. In fact, I, I would only debate one thing is I think 700 still play bad patterns. Um, I shouldn't say bad, but not optimal. I think there's still a lot of room for pattern improvement. I have, I have yet to see a 700 player that does not surprise me with how often they make the game difficult for themselves so I think there's room to improve patterns. In fact, I had a guy come here a few weeks ago from Canada that uh, was, you know, around a 700. And uh, he, he, I think, I think the time we spent together was, he was pretty excited about it. Uh, he, he didn't, you know, he's very knowledgeable. And, I, and he, I think he was surprised by 
what he was able to pick up from working with me. So I do think that pattern play is still a thing, but it's not as, it's not as, um, it's not as uh, large of a issue. It's not as obvious now is, um, but then again, just, man, even, even any improvement when you're at 700, you know, I mean, 20 points is almost a life's work at that point. So, you know, it's just a big deal. So, and then what Jesse says about kicking and safeties, obviously improving percentages, you know, uh, fundamentals and striking could still be a thing. I know that uh, my fundamentals aren't as good as I'd like them. And they, when I was 700, they certainly weren't all that strong. And so I, different, different 700s might have different leaks, um, the break shot, but then, but I'd say this. So, so you kind of like what Jesse said, you kind of have to know your game, but the ultimate thing that I really believe is you've got to compete against really, really strong players. And so it's very funny because when Jesse was talking about coming here and playing him sets, he was obviously joking. It was very funny, but like, actually they probably should come here and play you $500 sets. And then it's like really, really, really important because here's what I think. If you're a 700 and you're playing local tournaments where you're like as good as anyone in the tournament, it's just not going to drive you to make those improvements. And when it comes to like, well, where do you need to get better when you're trying to look at your game and say, well, where do I need to improve? you look at your game and you don't really need to improve because you're playing other people at a similar or lower level. So when you, when you, when you hold your game up, it's like, well, what, what are you comparing it to? You're comparing your game to other people's similar games and nothing really leaks off the page. You're like, yeah, I could be a little bit better at this trick shot, or maybe I need to work on my long banks or something, but like, but man, I'll tell you this, you go to that predator event and start playing these Polish champions. You'll see real clear all of a sudden that your game is not, it's not at the finish, you know, it's not a finished product. And so, but you, that's an experience that you don't get. And I, and I, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. When you, if you don't need, if you don't put your game in a spot where it's not good enough and it's insufficient, it's breaking down, then you won't see those leaks and you won't feel the need to close those gaps. You'll just kind of be like in a wish spot where it's like, yeah, I'd like to get better. It'd be cool if I was a little bit better at some of these things, but eh, it's pretty good versus just getting your, your nose, you know, your, your teeth kicked in and your nose open and to be like, man, I can't keep going if I don't improve in these areas and I need to find a way. And I'm staring at people that do this way better than me. And I need to be like that. I just think that it takes competition. So I, if I had to draw a line, I'd say like 640, 650, maybe 620 to 650. I feel like you can get to 620 to 650 without heavy competition. I feel like you can do that playing leagues, playing in your basement, you know, kind of doing drills, watching videos, taking some lessons, whatever. I think you can get up to 600 and a little bit beyond. Once you're at 650, 660 to 700, it's really, really hard to get better if you're not fairly regularly playing better players. So I, I just think you have to be competing. And uh, yeah, Jesse Angle, he's, he's here for you. <laughs> so I do want to add one thing here. Agree with uh, that or no? Yeah, no, I, I do agree. Yeah, I was just uh, I was already thinking about what I wanted to add to this. So I'm gonna be a sort of a plug for Debbie here, uh, and I know I'm biased because we're friends. <laughs> but this is one thing that I've noticed when it comes to like just teaching pool in general or any of the content that's out there for instruction. Like this is the reason why I don't teach pool is that I'm like I have all the knowledge clearly I have the skill set but I definitely can't structure it in a way that's individual for different types of players I mean if people come up and ask me questions about one or two or three shots I can explain it to them I can execute it 
10 times in a row and show it exactly why it works. But there's just, there's something else that you have to have in place there for, for teaching. And this is why I think that uh, you probably do well with your students is that when people come in, you're able to kind of, well, I mean, I'm just, I mean, I, laughing, I, I was, like, I'm, la I'm laughing because I'm like, I was going to say, Jesse, very good. You, you, you sounded like you're actually saying this, like you're not even reading off the cards. <laughs> oh, yeah. So like when people come to you, so when people come to you though you're able to identify like not only where they're but you could probably estimate their fargo rate without them telling you prior or ever looking it up just by like kind of working with them for a few hours i mean you, you'd have a the, pretty the close funny, range there the funny, right the funny part is is i could talk to somebody on the phone for 10 minutes ask them a few questions and i could pretty i could usually be within 20 points just by doing a quick five minute interview by phone. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that's one thing that I think makes you like extremely unique in this, uh, in this category. And I mean, the, the main reason, like, obviously it's a nice plug for you, you know, push people towards you. But what I will say is that if people are listening and you're, you know, you want to take this game seriously and you, you want to take the path of, or not the hard path of just trying to figure out everything by yourself definitely consider that as opposed to maybe going to like a local even even some of the top players that might charge you 50 75 100 an hour to, to work with them because it may seem like you have to i mean i i don't know what exactly you charge but my whole point is like if there is a financial difference there or the idea of traveling here that's such an added benefit that i think people undervalue because if you're if the person teaching you can't really identify all the leaks in your game early on and form a like a very good you know a very good game plan and how are you going to get from point a to point b you're just going to like spend so much wasted time treading water while your coach tries to learn how to coach you so i don't know if that that was said the best way but i i think you'll probably be able to kind of recap that in a in a, in a better way but i, I know that there's a, a lot of merit to that when it comes to to learning skills so well i'll, I'll just say thank you and i i, I believe I'm very, you know, I, I believe heavily in what I do. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to turn this into an infomercial. So I'll just, I'll, I'll just say thank you. And, and yeah, I feel very confident that there's a lot of people that are, are, you know, can show you something or tell you to work on this or tell you to try to do that. But it, I, I feel like I'll, I'll give you one example is like when people talk about, um, you know, staying away from side pockets, you know, oh, top players, they try not to overuse side pockets. You know, they try to play for the corners. Like this is a kind of a cliche, but the thing is, is that there's, so there's like a lot of types of cliche advice in pool that people can tell you. And then you can not really understand why that is or how it fits into the game, or if that's really what the biggest thing is right now. I just feel like um, there's a lot of things that when you work with an instructor, they might show you something or tell you something that's like a valuable nugget, but like it's one piece of a puzzle. And so it's like, I think that, I think that what I do is I look at where somebody is, where they want to go, what they've been working on. And I feel like I can, my, what separates me is I can prioritize and figure out which pieces are next and how do they need to put them together. Whereas I feel like a lot of instructors are just kind of shoveling pieces randomly and saying, here's a piece. Good luck. Anyway. So that's, that's, that's what I'd say. So. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that's just, uh, it's just my personal opinion. Like I said, I mean, I know we're friends, but uh, I I've seen enough of the content out there to know that. Uh, I mean, I can back that up. So cool. Yeah. So if, and if you happen to head to Demi, you know, not that he's doing this for me, but please use promo code Jesse. 
<laughs> okay, well, that's enough. That's All right, we'll move on. We're tracking you. We're tracking you. All right, so let's have a little fun. Uh, we're having a good time. We're starting to, we're getting our second Mountain Dew going. We're, we're going to catch a gear. So what I wanted to talk about now was, let's see. So there was a post on Easy Billiards. This is where it all starts. It starts with a post on Easy Billiards where the question was, should professional art, you know, or should professional players call foul on themselves? And there, I've seen this, this comes up like every six months. So I've probably seen 20 iterations of this in the last 10 years. And, and it's not the answer. Okay, so let's just start by this, Jesse. Should professional players call foul on themselves? Okay, so without adding any other side <laughs> thing to that, my first view of that is 100% always call the foul on yourself. Um, to give a quick example of this, like, I remember you were there, so you'll be able to, like, remember what the mood was like. I was playing Shane at the U.S. Bar Table Championships in, like, what was the semifinal in the eight ball? And I remember this is, like, the first time this has happened to me in probably five years. I, I was, like, thinking about what I wanted to do if I wanted to roll forward three inches or just kind of, like, stun off to the right. And I get down on my practice strokes, and my tip just ever so slightly nudge the cue ball to the point where the, the cue ball did not move, but I definitely felt that I, that I made contact. And all I did was like, you probably remember the moment better than I did. All I did in my, in my head is just like, I did the, the whole like heart sink thing. I stood up and I just kind of looked with a blank stare for like two seconds. And then I looked over at Shane and just kind of, you know, gave him the arm wave like, yep, I, I followed. And like, he gave me this look where he was like, like he was puzzled, like what was going on, and then he figured out, oh, you, you must have fouled somehow. Shane and, must have been like, oh, you you must be, uh, you must have bet on me on the side. <laughs> yeah, so, and like to this day, like I don't know if if you look back and watch that match, I don't know if there would anybody would have been able to see any movement. I don't know if anybody else in the, in the you know, not to make myself sound like some saint of a human being, but what I just know is that it in almost every single case, like that's like it's just the right thing to do, man. Like it just takes away from the integrity of the game if you don't do that. And let's take out the whole point of like karma. It's just, it's just not good. Like it take just game integrity is, is so big. You just don't do it. But, so. but speaking of karma later in the match, he was down four to three against Shane going to five. And uh, he, Jesse runs down to the eight ball and half hooks himself where he can't quite shoot the eight in the corner. And uh, he, uh, he, he calls a three rail bank for the eight in the corner. And so he's, it's like a one pocket bank, a three railer, you know, Shane's got all his balls open. So he's like, he's, you know, Shane's on the hill, Jesse's shooting a three railer. He kind of just died that he's half hooked and he shoots this three railer and the eight ball hits the first rail, the second rail and the third rail and goes right in the, the center of the hole. And, and then he breaks and runs out of the hill like a boss. And I'll tell you something. So Jesse ends up winning that match. And I'll tell you my funniest, the funniest thing, I've probably watched this like 30 times on YouTube. So it's on YouTube. You can look it up, Jesse Angle, Shane Van Boning. My favorite part is that when the ball leaves the third rail, Shane is sitting in line of the camera and he's sitting right behind the line from that point on the rail into the pocket. So Shane is actually the first person to know whether that ball is heading towards the corner and if you watch his face, like Shane kind of is like kind of like body leaning over to see what's happening. And if you watch his face as that eight ball leaves the third rail and starts tracking towards the corner, the look of disgust that Tover takes is he was just like, 
he's just like the stuff I have to put up with, man. That's what Shane was. You could just see Shane's was just like, oh, of course it's gonna go in. Anyway, I probably watched his expression like, and I like Shane. You know, I'm a big fan. Trust me, I'm a big fan. But when I've got half of Jesse Engel in the eight ball tournament, then then I, I like Jesse more at that moment. at that moment. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. So anyway, karma. Good That's karma. But yeah, so back to the the original question. I, just off the top of my head, it would be hard to find a time that I would consider the idea of not calling a fall on myself at where I'm at in my life. Like maybe when I was younger, I might've tried to, or been able to justify a reason of why, you know, Oh, if they didn't see it, whatever, when I was a little bit less uh, mature mentally, but overall, anybody out there that ever has that type of thought, you don't have to take my word for it, but please do. Okay. <laughs> Just call the follow yourself. So. so this one's the reason I find this one interesting is because that's where I am today. So 2021, I call foul on myself. No questions asked. No big deal. The, when I was a kid, the difference was, was that I grew up in a pool hall in the 90s where I can't speak for everywhere in the 90s. I didn't play it on the road. But in the pool hall I grew up in, nobody called foul on themselves. And it wasn't that we're, now this is where it gets weird. We weren't like a bunch of scumbags. It's just the way that we played it was like kind of like house rules. I guess you could say it was like house rules where back when I was playing in the nineties, we watched each other play and it was the, it was the responsibility of the opponent to call foul. So if, if you bumped a cue ball or if, or if you didn't get a rail, if they, now the rules in our, in my pool hall, the rules were, if somebody asked you, did you bump that ball? Did you get a rail? Was that a foul? You had to, like, you always answered honestly. Like, nope, no rail. It's a foul. But you didn't volunteer that. You waited until they called. And I'm not saying that this was right. I'm not saying, but but I, but I do think I do think this is interesting. So, but that's just the way everybody played it. So here's the interesting question: If everybody played it that way, is it wrong? Well, yeah. I mean, this this type of conversation could go again. That. that it could go on and you could come up with different justifications. I just don't think it's that complicated. I think it's just taking a personal responsibility that back to the game integrity thing. It's just the way it needs to be. It's not about what those other people are doing or, well, everybody's doing this and then it's fine. It is what it is. Like when you are, when you're the last person driving your town at midnight and you come up to the stoplight, do you stop or do you, do you just see that? Well, there's no other headlights within a mile. I'm just going to run right through this because I'm clearly not going to cause an accident, but no, it's like you stop and you wait for the lights to turn green. Like it's, it's the same kind of concept. I know it's not about cheating or not cheating, but it's just, there's, there's reasons why there's rules of the game in place mm. and you just follow the rules. So and this is okay. So this is where I, this is where I think it's really interesting because this is, by the way, Jesse represents the vast, vast majority, the vast majority. Okay, so I have a very unpopular minority opinion. However, my opinion is not that I don't call fouls on myself. I do. But let me explain. The reason that I call fouls on myself is because in 2021, in today's day and age, there is a cultural expectation among pool players that we are to call fouls on ourselves. So because it is a social expectation, then I play by that. Is I So I consider this a social norm, meaning it is a social agreement that we all have that we're going to call foul on ourselves. And so then I will follow that norm. However, 
Where I disagree with Jesse is he was using examples that there's rules and we have to follow those rules. But what I'm saying, Jesse, is what if the rules were that your opponent's job is to play the role of the referee? So I, I, this was a very, very hard leap for a lot of people on AZ Billiards. They really, really, really struggled with this. And a lot of people just kept coming back to, well, if you do something that's against the rules and they're supposed to get ball in hand, if you don't give them ball in hand, then you're breaking the rules. And that's low integrity. I'm like, no, what if the rules were, it's your opponent's responsibility to call follow and play the role of the ref. Then you're not breaking the rules. It's just different rules. Yeah. So on that specific point, I would say, again, to me, what that sounds like on the surface is that you're trying to leave yourself an opening to be able to like, as like a cop out to justify dropping your personal accountability to, to maintain the game integrity. That's just where I see it. It's like, yes, your opponent should have to call the foul. Right. But if they, okay. It's like, if you, this is a scenario that does come up in pool. Okay. You go up to the ball and it's you're gonna uh like slow one rail kick at a ball and you when you walk past it you very clear as day see that it's a frozen ball okay but it's a shot that's set up where when you're gonna kick at that one rail you guys you and your opponent are both knowledgeable enough players where they could probably see why you'd want to hit it pretty hard and it might be a valid shot so they really don't know what you're doing and yes, the correct move there would be they should probably ask, hey, are you going to just slow roll or leg at this ball or slow roll? And then you kind of handle it from there. But they don't really know what's going on in your mind either. And they might not want to mess with your momentum. So then you decide to go up and you slow roll the ball, right? And of course, it does the standard half like double kiss where the cue ball doesn't hit the rail after. And then now they say like, oh, I probably should have checked if that ball is frozen if I, if I would have known you were going to do that. Like, what do you do there? Do you then say like, Oh yeah. Like I, I just never thought I would hit it that bad. Like there's so many ways that you could like take a route to like kind of cop out there and, and get yourself out of handing over the foul. Or if they just kind of do like the, the side, you just know why they're doing it. It's like, no, what I do in those scenarios now, like now more than ever is when I walk past, if I know it's frozen, I just, and I know that I'm going to do a, a hit that could end up being controversial. I just be like, Hey, by the way, it is frozen. Or if I know that it's a slight bit off, I just say, just so you know, it's off the rail. And then that, that opens up for them to go take a look. So there's no argument after. There's just, that's just the best way to handle it. And I feel like a lot of these situations can be avoided if you don't have any part of that mindset that is, well, I might be able to kind of get into a gray area that might turn, turn out in my favor here. So, so here's where I think is really interesting. So Jess, we don't have to agree with this at all. I'll just tell you, my, my view is, I find that people can't, they're so stuck in one paradigm that they can't see beyond it. I just feel like deep down, you're like, it's wrong not to call foul on yourself. So then even if, even if we have a culture where, even if the rules say that it was your opponent's job and everybody else thinks it's your opponent's job, but, but you're still doing it wrong though, because you're supposed to be doing it this other way. So it's like, I'm trying to conjure up a hypothetical world in which the rule book says it's your opponent's responsibility, which nobody else calls foul on themselves and which everyone else expects that it's their responsibility to do so. And even in that hypothetical world, you're like, yeah, but that's not the right way to play. That's not the right way to do it. You got to do it the right way. And so like the only thing I can kind of compare it to would be like, there's places where 
people consider safeties like dirty pool, right? Like there's bars where if you play defense, they're like, well, what are you, you know, you're cheating. You got to go for that pocket. And so, so like there's different ways of playing the game. And so like, if you're playing in a bar where everybody in that bar tries to honest effort every single shot and nobody ever plays a deliberate safety, then if you play a safety and if they all call you like, you act like you're a cheater and you're low integrity, who's right? Are you, are you low integrity? Cause you play a safe because, and the, you know, it's their own fault that everyone disagrees with you in this bar. Cause they're all just really stupid. Or is it you that is a failure and you are playing low integrity because you're playing in a different cultural norm. And so in that environment, you're being low integrity. So is, is playing a safe when, if you're playing where nobody else is playing safe and they all consider that cheating is playing a safe, low integrity. What so, are your thoughts? Okay. Yeah. So this is like a tangent where I can Good. maybe hop a little bit over the other side. There used to be a tournament when I lived down in Florida for about a year where it was, a uh, it was on like, I want to say, yeah, it was on eight footers. Like I don't remember the, but anyways, these goofy eight footers with like tight pockets and springy rails. And it was a, it was just a race to one Friday night tournament. The only reason like all the decent players played is they had a pretty juicy break pot. But, um, but this was a, a really interesting rule they had where it was, it was eight ball, but it was best effort eight ball. So yeah, strange thing. So you always had to be shooting at a ball. And if they like, basically if they caught you to the point where it was like, Oh, like that you didn't really hit, give yourself a true chance to make a ball there, then you were in a jam. And, and I never thought that this would come up, but uh, this, yeah, it was such a strange situation. Cause I, I got in the spot where I left myself up table and I knew that if I, if I like, basically the, the spot shot that you do at the shootouts for the, it was like that kind of shot. And I knew that the cue ball was coming two rails back towards the, the same side, but opposite corner. Right. So like the, the Jason class scratch. <laughs> well, so the, the two rail, the two rail, the quarter scratch. And, uh, and if I, as long as the cue ball got up there, it was going to give me a shot on the eight ball, almost like straight into the side. Right. But if I scratched, they also had a rule where if you, if you got ball in hand, you didn't get true ball in hand. You had to play it behind the line. And if your ball was behind the line, you had to kick at it. So my opponent had one ball left, which was just behind the line. So I knew if I scratched, he was going to be in a much worse position than he was if I didn't scratch and hooked it. Right. So like it was a, it was a huge bonus to scratch at that shot. <laughs> so I went for the ball but I intentionally shot it in the way that gave me the speed to best scratch, <laughs> knowing that if I missed the ball, I was going to get him, you know, in a tough spot. So I ended up making the ball, it full roll legged in and, he, and, he, and it scratched. And then he was like, well, like that's where he was like, well, you, you didn't even try to avoid the scratch. Like he tried to call like a technicality there. And I'm like, well, I mean, what do you want me to say? I made the ball. So that was like one time where you could maybe argue that. Yeah. Maybe I did something like, it was, I guess, if you want to say it was slightly shady, then it was. But, like, I took the highest percentage within the rule without breaking the so rule. I will, just, I will just share. I found myself in a similar spot one time. We were playing a tournament up at uh, Jimmy's Pro Billiards. We were playing one of those chip tournaments, okay. like the ring chip tournaments. <laughs> and so we had, we had, you know, six players per table. You put chips up at every table, and then you play it. Whoever wins gets the pot of chips, and then the antes go out or the blinds go up, and eventually people get busted out, and the table, the four tables consolidate to one table. And anyway, I ended up making it to the finals, and I ended up playing another guy in the finals that you know quite well. And anyway, 
then the funniest part is that it's a heads up race to 11. But for some reason, and, and it's, you know what, I've won two ring game like type tournaments like this. So maybe I'm mixing them up. But anyway, there was a ring game tournament I played where I got to the finals and they were like, I had, it was like ring game rules. Like you had an honest effort, and everything. And if you, if you missed the ball that they could either take it or pass it back. And it was like, it was like, they basically continued to play ring game rules, even when we got heads up, which is like really, really, really weird. It's like to play honest effort, like ring game. Yeah. It's like the whole reason to go like honest effort in a ring game for those that don't know is that when you're playing with a group of people, there's no reason to ever play defense because you're, you go and then there's five other players that are going to take a turn playing a good defensive shot. All you're doing is helping the guy, two players behind you. So it's not going to really matter. But, but when you're playing heads up to sit there and say, well, just honest effort, go for everything. But then to sit there and act like, well, okay, I can go for this where if I miss it hangs or I can go for it where if I miss, I leave you table length behind balls. You know what I mean? It's like to sit there and try to like, deny that you understand where the balls are likely to end up if you miss. It's a really hard thing to do. So anyway, it's kind of funny. But but the point is, who's, okay, just answer, yeah, go, you were kind of using this to answer my question. My question to you was, in a bar where nobody plays safe, would you consider it cheating to play a safety? If everyone else considers it cheating to play a safety. So is it, I guess my question that is, so is it the bar rule or is it just like, that's just how they play the game in Shimbukawai County. <laughs> uh, so, so you've got, you just got the whole pool room where everybody, like anytime, you know, like you already know it because like they're talking about like this guy last week came in and, you know, I mean, we, we told him you got to go for your ball. And he kept on, he kept on doing this thing where he didn't even go for his ball. And he was just rolled up behind something that, you know, we had, a, yeah, we're not letting him play in here again. That guy, we don't want to play with him. That guy's terrible agile. What a cheater. And, he, and everyone's agreeing and like mobbing the, you know, the memory of the guy. And then you're sitting there. So like in that type of environment, like assuming sure. you're not worried for your physical safety or anything. So I, okay, I'll just tell you my opinion. I think in that situation, it would be pretty low integrity to play a safety. Right. I think that these guys aren't playing safe on you. It's pretty clear that if you want to play in this environment, that there's an expectation, a social norm, if you will, that this is how the game is going to be played. And if you want to play in that environment, I think you should adapt to that environment and play in a way that's going to be consistent with their, I think you have to adapt your ethics to the situation that you're in. Fair. And what I would say to that is in that exact situation, this is how I would handle it. I agree. I would not just play like, blatant safeties to like be be you know that guy but for specific situation i mean if you're playing rotation it's a little bit different for the most part they don't they just play eight ball they just play eight, <laughs> okay so if they play eight ball yeah. here's a here's a perfect scenario let's say your cue ball is in a position where you have very similar shots on one of your last two balls and then the eight ball is just like yes. hanging the corner like i in a hundred percent of the time there I'm going to choose the shot that has a higher percentage to leave him with a worse shot. So that's like you're 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 sort of playing a two-way shot safe without really doing that. I think and, that, I think what you're saying is you're going to make an honest effort on every shot if that's the expectation, but you might decide which shot to make your honest effort on based on your knowledge of how the cue ball works and all these things. Like that's totally reasonable. I think that's a reasonable compromise. Yeah. But what you're not going to do is like roll up behind a ball, just wedge him like Mickey Mouse up behind the three ball, you know, just like, ha ha ha. And you're not going to do that. Yeah. I think that would be, that okay. would be. So let me ask you another one. This one, I didn't have this example prepared, but now I've, cause I'm thinking about this, this bar room. Now I feel like I got to give this bar room a name. 
we should call it, uh, you know, Bob's side pocket. So anyway, while we're playing at Bob's side pocket, uh, if the cue ball lands near uh, a rail, they're allowed to move it, uh, a ball width off the rail. The, you know, if the cue ball freezes to the rail and they got to shoot, they're allowed to move it off the bumper because they don't want to have to shoot off the wall. So anytime they lay it against the wall, <laughs> they get to move it off the wall and shoot from there. So now you're playing and uh, your cue ball freezes to the rail. Do you move it off the wall? Well, <laughs> I would, I mean, if that's the rule, I guess I'd pull up my putter and call spaces to move it away from the <laughs> Yeah, brick, so, the okay, brick, so, so, this, so, so this is my is point. Funny. I, so this is my point. So you're saying, I just want to be clear. I feel like I'm a some, you know, trial lawyer here. All right, Mr. Johnson. So what you're saying, you just acknowledge that you would pick up the cue ball with your hand, move it three inches, and then shoot from where it lay. Now, in anywhere else, that would be considered a foul. Sure. And if you did that in a game, okay, now think about this. Because then how, you could get yourself hooked, just out of being hooked. Yes, there's, there's a lot, a lot of cool of, things okay. you can do. But, but the point is, yeah. is, so if somebody had a video of you playing a money match, and the cue ball froze on the rail, and then your opponent was like ordering a drink, and you like moved it off the rail three inches and yeah. shot. Everybody would be like, "This guy is the biggest cheater in the world." But yet, in the right environment, it wouldn't be cheating if that's the way the game plays. Okay, right? that's totally fair. Okay, so if yeah, if that's their their bar rule, they're like, yeah, if you're within the the bumper or whatever the butt end of the cue, like you can move it that far away yeah. directly from the rail where it is. Like if that's the rule, I mean. Even being like the, my skill level, like of course, if it's gonna benefit me to use that tournament rule, I'm going to use that tournament rule, right? Yes. Now that's to me that that's way different. That's way different than having a close hit where it's like almost can be a split hit. The second like you get there, by the way the cue ball reacts, you know, being a knowledgeable player that you hit the opponent's ball first, and then they're like, oh well, that that was pretty close. You know, probably would have been too close to call. But you deep down know, like, no, nah, not really, because the cue ball went left and then it went right right away. Like that, that can't happen with the law of physics. If I if I hit my ball first, then in my opinion, you're just you're just bad for not calling a foul on yourself in that that scenario. When you yeah. get into the, all these like little finicky rules, yeah, I mean, that's well, the, the that's reason tricky. the reason you can I, play percentages. The but, reason I bring it up, I believe it is a social norm. And I believe that right now, so many people are so stuck in the, I mean, it's fine. It's, I'm totally fine with this, by the way. I've got no problem with calling foul on yourself. I'll do it. That's what I do. That's what everyone does now. Uh, I just, my whole point is, is that I don't think that it's um, necessary. Like if, like the pool hall I grew up with, everybody was expected to call foul on your opponent. And it was like, they, they taught me when I was like 12 or 13, you don't call foul. If somebody calls foul, you tell them. If they don't, that's on them. And that's the way everybody played. So was everybody in that pool hall completely cheater pants unethical or was that just kind of a house rules? That's how we played back then. You know, I, I don't really understand how, how that's unethical. If that's the understanding and everyone's playing the same way, it's no, nobody's cheating. Those are just the rules. You know what I mean? That's just the rules that we're playing by. So, so I'll tell you where it gets interesting, right? And we don't have to agree. I just find it interesting that people are just, so I, I said, I don't, I think it's a social norm. Then one person on AZ Billiards was like, kind of telling me like, even if everyone plays that way, it's, it's still wrong. Even if everyone accepts it, even if everyone's okay with it, it doesn't make it right. And I, and I really, and so I spent the better part of a day. Like I didn't just snap reply to the guy. I thought about this all day last week. I had a day where I was just thinking about this. And I was like, what other standard for right is there other than what everybody does and accepts and agrees to like, 
I was thinking about, and now I'm like, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not like some debate person or some logic, you know, philosophy guy. So I'm not, I'm not here to like really go down some weird rabbit hole, but like, it just seems like that's what, that's what right and wrong really is, is that when a bunch of people get together and say, Hey, this is right. This is wrong. Like outside of that, if everybody gets together and says, Hey, this is how we play. This is right. Then how can it really be wrong? The only, I'm like, what makes something wrong? if it's not a group of people deciding it's wrong. And the only th- other thing I could come up with would be like some religious thing where it's like, hey, God says this is wrong, you know, but I don't think that's going to weigh in on how we regulate our pool games. So like, I just don't know, like without the only, th- by definition to me, it seems like for something to be wrong, there has to be people judging it as wrong. And if all the judging people agree that it's okay, what makes it wrong? I don't understand. Totally fair. I mean, my my opinion now, where I'm at, is that I think there's some scenarios that can come up where that concept is something that you have to like overlook still and and really just figure out your own personal answer. So for me, you know, yeah, it's like, is it wrong to if you're in a so if you're in a, a weekly tournament, right? And you're clearly the best. I mean, if you're in a week the tournament, you're probably going to be the best player there. And that's your, like, Unless one you're playing specific- with me. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. I see where you're going with that. No, like a few areas <laughs> of the country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, if the next, if they're all beginners, right? Yeah. Now, it's like if you shoot a shot where, like, the cue ball is, like, a millimeter away from the object ball, and you know you're just in a dead jam, but it's, like, straight in up in the corner, and the only way to get down the ball in the end rail on the opposite end rail is just to level cue it, know you're going to double Shove hit it, and get yeah. down there. Right now to most players, they're going to be like, that guy made the ball. He was so close. And he got down table. Like not most players, most beginners will not have a clue at why that can't work. Right. And they won't even, they they're so clueless that they don't even know that they, they should even ask mm-hmm. about a foul because they might not even know that there can even be a double hit foul. They, yeah. they don't even understand that. Right. So if you do that and then all the guys in there, that are kind of like they start clapping. <laughs> yeah, like people are clapping, right? Yeah. And then there's and then there's five other players who know that there is a such thing as a double hit foul, but maybe just don't know. And they're like, ah, you're doing great. Like, even if even if it was, it's like whatever, you just hit it, you do it. They tell you that, and nobody's there to tell you that like that's just wrong to do. That's just bad for game integrity. Then at what point, even if a hundred people are like, Yeah, no, that's you got if you're gonna get away with it, it's just you gotta do it. At what point do you like maybe not about losing sleep at what point do you just say you know what like this is just where i'm gonna like draw the line so, like i'm so, not gonna do this because i don't believe that this is good for game integrity okay so i think that of course in today it with today's culture that would be horrible if if and I, I have to stretch my own mind because it seems so it's such a weird hypothetical but if the culture truly was it's your opponent's job to call follow and that's just how you're raised. And that's what you're taught is right. And that's just, and there's actually a reason to do it that way. There's actually a reason to do it that way. I'll get into it in a second. But if that's just like, hey, it's, you know, it's your opponent's job. And if they're not paying attention, and if they're on their cell phone, or if they're watching the, you know, the birds outside or whatever, like, that's, a, that's a mistake by your opponent. Not a foul by you. It's a mistake by your opponent. It's, a, it's like them hanging a ball. Well, if in that world, if you shove through the ball and they don't know that that's a foul, they don't even know to call foul there. Then you would just take that and consider it a skill edge. 
the same way that if you played a safety and they didn't know what the right return was, sure, then you would just consider that I get ball in hand because they just missed the ball because they didn't understand that there was an easier kick. That's a skill edge. And you would just consider that a skill edge that I've developed knowledge that they don't have. And, um, and that's part of my skill edge. Yeah. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just, by today's standards, that's horribly wrong. But in the, sure. in the hypothetical world, then you can't use, that's the whole point is we can't. So I, like I was talking about social norms, like a lot of things have changed, right? There's a lot of things that we don't do today that we used to do 50 years ago, hundred years ago, 200 years ago in our country. And if we look 200 years in the future, you know, there's a lot of things we do today that might not be okay. You know, I don't know if everyone's vegetarian and eating animals is considered like, you know, travesty that we'd have animals, you know, raised and slaughtered for meat when we have alternatives or, or, you know, whatever. I could probably think of like 10 other things that like, you know, that, you know, using technology that's being built by people in third world countries that are like working unlivable conditions that we can have shiny new stuff. And it's like, we might look back and say, this was unconscionably bad. This is not okay. But the point is, is I just like there's social norms. And so we do the best we can, but okay. And so I just think that these things shift and change and that you have to look at the, the, I guess my point about like the people that, that don't play safeties and all these different things is you kind of have to look at the, the culture and the expectation. I think that, I, I think that what sets that. So my whole thing is like, I call follow on myself. I got no problem with calling follow myself. I think it's the right thing to do in today's day and age. I just didn't like the idea that it's like, it's not to me, it wasn't like white and black where it's like all good people always call foul and to do it any other way would always be horribly wrong. It's like, yeah, I, I think it's more context and shifting context and cultural, you know, expectation. That's anyway. So that's, we don't have to agree, but that's just that's kind of where I landed on the thing. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> that's fair. Um, sorry. So I was thinking. Uh, I guess maybe a final like wrap up note with that is. I just think there's some things in life where again well it's kind of the same thing i already said but like i've learned a lot with the way i've lived my life mistakes i've made like other just life choices and, and something that i have landed on and like i'm just i'm going to be set on this now is that there there is like times that are going to come up in your life where you you sort of have to like pretend as if like you can get away with it nobody knows nobody's ever going to know. And are you going to regret just playing that way and knowing that you can, whether it be pool or life in general, right? Like this is just kind of where I stay. Like it, it's just better. I mean, it's just going to lead to like an overall better society. If, if that's the way you want to be right. If you want to try to be like a good person for the world, then these are the types of moments. I mean, it sounds stupid because we're talking about a game of pool, but like, I think that this is something that can, you know, this carries over into other, all other areas in life. And, and this probably like, is not something that people could follow, but I mean, I just think this is what ends up leading to all the world's problems, like for the most part, because you have a bunch of people who like kind of create their own little, like, okay, their little lines, like when it starts at pool, right. But then what does it go to that? It goes to like the next year of your life. And, and then you just, I, you can listen. I'm going right. to interrupt. I, I don't disagree. Like I believe you know, what did, uh, what was the Gandhi quote? Like, keep your thoughts positive because your thoughts become your words and keep your words positive because your words become your behavior. Your, keep your behavior positive. Your behavior becomes your habits. Your habits become your destiny. Uh, you know, your values and your values become your destiny. I, something like that. So it's like, obviously what you are is you're built up of a bunch of small decisions and, and the habits and the values of the character you set moment by moment uh, builds into something big. 
the the part that I, I think that we, we, we can move on because I just I, I feel that there's a disconnect where the the whole idea that that you should you should do what's right even when no one's watching and that those little small things matter and you need to stick to your you know stick to your integrity. I agree with that. I just don't think it's a given that there's only one way for integrity to be translated and cool, and that is to always to call foul on yourself, that that's the only way that integrity could be expressed in any culture. I don't, because I've, I grew up in a different culture where there was high integrity. Now, on the other hand, I've also seen a lot of things, like I've seen a pastor that I grew up playing nine ball with and straight pool with. He thought it was, he, he would not take a foul. He considered it unethical or immoral to take a foul. He's like, the rules say, you know, it's, you have to hit the lowest ball or you have to hit a rail. And if you don't, that's a foul and that you're, you know, that's bad. Like that's a, there's a, you know, and I was like, well, yeah, but you take, it's a strategy thing. You take a foul as a penalty, you pay the penalty. It's a strategic penalty. And he's like, yeah, but that means that you didn't make a legal shot. And as a good person, I think, I believe that you should attempt to play within the rules. The rules say you need to hit a rail. Yes. There's a penalty for not following the rules, but the rules say you're supposed to hit a rail. So I'm going to hit a rail. And so he always played that way. And I beat his brains out, but it's like, um, because I'd take fouls and he wouldn't, but I always thought that was really weird. And so that's, I guess my whole point is, is that, you know, and there's a lot of things too, man. There's a lot of other things like that. Now, the one argument for not calling foul on yourself is that let's just suppose you have a hundred people in the tournament and 50 of them call, are willing to call foul on themselves and 50 of the people aren't. If the expectation is you call foul on yourself, then the 50 people that have low integrity have an advantage over the 50 people that don't. Whereas if everybody's expected to call foul on each other, then everyone's on an even playing field. And so I tend to not like rules when they're set up to where the people that have integrity are at a disadvantage, the people that are willing to cheat. And so I feel like if your goal is to eliminate cheating, then you could maybe set up rules such that cheating is not incentivized and, and integrity is not punished. And to me, I'm, if I could wave a wand, I, I would, if I could sit there and wave a wand and say, everybody would agree with my set of values. The reason that I thought it was cool growing up in a pool room where you had to call foul on your opponent was because it was an even playing field and everybody could act honestly and not be at a disadvantage. Fair. Uh, I know you want to move on, but just because you mentioned that, no, no, it's good. like a perfect thing. So I, I'm not going to mention any names because I would never call people up for that reason. And I don't think that this maybe like would really say it because they might have similar types of views that you do or for different reasoning, whatever it is, there are certain types or there is certain players, like even in this like Minnesota or few state area that I know for a fact, because I've had a long history of playing in <laughs> tournaments that when there is those things where they, they slow kick at a ball and it's an inch or a half inch off the rail, and it's like close to a split hit that they're always going to like error. If you want to put error on the side, that's in favor of them. Right. Are some of these people older gen, older generation? Uh, some, uh, some, well, again, I don't want to narrow it down. No, no, no. Okay. There's, there's players. I just players that I know that will do this. And I've had it done to me multiple times. Now, definitely when I was younger, when I was still like competing more and like, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of like killer instinct. I wanted to be the winner and I cared more about the result. I did always have in the back of my mind that I kept like a, a tally of this stuff. Right. And I knew that I was like, yep, this player's like, I viewed it as like this player cheated me like three times. And I had it in my mind that when I play this player, if a similar situation comes up, that's really truly borderline. And I don't know that I just, 
you know, like there's a 0% chance I'm going to budge. It's like no chance, like no chance didn't foul. If it's close enough, no chance it didn't foul. And then what I realized is like, you know, so I, I get it. I, I don't want to make this sound like I'm some perfect human being that's like never done oh, this. Oh, but you are, Jesse. No, Go no, on. far Go from on. it. No. This is just, I've learned a lot from personal experience with this. I remember that this situation came up with somebody that did that to me. And I, and I knew that they had done it like plenty of times. I mean, enough to make me like super angry about it. And a situation came up where I shot a shot that I knew it was a very, very high percentage that I probably did not get a good hit, but it was super close. Super, super close. And even the people that were watching were kind of like, I don't, maybe you could kind of hear him talking about it. And I was just like, I don't know, man, you should have called the ref. And afterwards, I realized, I was like, you know what? That was pretty close. But I didn't feel good because I knew that it was going to probably be close. And I, and I knew that the right thing for me to do at that time, even knowing that the person would have like cheated you back, cheated yeah, me yeah. back is I should have just taken the, I should have made it the super fair route and said, Hey, like, I think this has a chance to be close. I want to get somebody to watch it. That's what I do now is anytime I think there's going to be something close. I rather, I'm not going to say if I, especially if they're like a per- person I know might do like something to side with them. I'll never say, Hey, like, let's both watch it because I know we can get in an argument. That's where I just want to get the third party to make the call and just accept the result. If it's going to be close because but yeah, but I think you have, like, my whole point is, I think you have to go through that and, and decide for yourself what you think is correct. And just where I land is, I don't care that that gives them a slight advantage in those situations, because if if they end up winning the tournament and, and they feel good and like, I mean, great, good for them. If yeah. I won a tournament on a Hill Hill set that, that was like to get into the money and I knew I had just an easy coast from there for a few thousand dollars, like, I'm not going to feel great knowing that I, I cheated that person. Or borderline cheated them. Okay, so so we're talking about a couple of different things. One question you're answering is, in that situation I talked about, where there's 50 cheaters, 50 non-cheaters, and we've got the rules set up where by calling foul on ourselves, we've given the cheaters the advantage. You're saying, I'm willing to give up that advantage to have my integrity. I am too. I am too. So we're in agreement. But the question is... Playing down your basement would the say otherwise. Question, but, oh, wow. The question is, should we set the rules up that way? I'm going to give you... I, so, so my whole thing is that when I set up rules, okay, and I don't set up rules for pool, I don't run tournaments, but as a parent and as a former manager, I would sometimes have to set up policies or set up rules. I've learned I don't set up rules to be followed. I don't set up rules with the expectation that everyone's going to follow them. That would just be really easy. Like, for example, if if in our country we said, you know what, we're going to make alcohol illegal because it would be better if nobody drank. It's like, yeah, but what's not going to happen is everybody's going to be like, okay, that's the new rule. We're all quit drinking. It's like, what's actually going to happen is what happened during prohibition. There's going to be, you know, the moonshine and the, the bootleggers and all this stuff. And there's going to be, so, so then the question is, the question isn't, would the world be a better place if we made this rule to quit drinking and everybody quit drinking? The question is, would the world be a better place when we start having organized crime and we start having to lock up civilians and all this stuff? Like, do we want to, what's going to happen when we enforce these rules? And I really believe that a lot of tournament directors don't get this and they make rules because they think people will follow them and it'll be better. But what, what people don't follow them and then the way it either rewards cheaters or it's, or it creates really difficult to enforce. So like a great example of that is pattern racking, like the, you know, saying, Hey, no pattern racking. But then the problem is, is that a lot of people pattern rack. 
And it's really easy to have three different patterns that you rotate between and you flip-flop symmetrically. And some of these people, now you might think in, a, in, a, in a, some matches that might not mean a lot, but if you're playing with a magic rack and if you're playing on a, on a good breaking table, it could be decisive. And I've seen it during ghost matches, during like these uh, virtual isolation tournaments and virtual tournaments and stuff, when people are playing the ghost, uh, you know, the ones that Nate did, we had an assigned pattern and that, that solved that problem. So I like that. But I've seen some matches where you're not supposed to pattern rack, where we've seen certain people flip between a few different patterns where nothing can really be proved necessarily. Uh, and of course, there's different degrees, right? There's like stuff where it's like, well, I won't use a pattern, but I'll make sure that the four balls never in that row, or I'll make sure that that ball's never back there. And so it's anyway... I just look at it. And so one interesting thing at that tournament where you uh, three rail that ball in on Shane, they, uh, that was a was CSI tournament. Right. And when we were playing the nine ball and the 10 ball, they had had a rule that said no pattern racking. And when we talked to the refs about it, they said, we're not going to have this rule next year. Next year, we're allowing pattern racking because trying to enforce this was such an awful, awful, awful thing for a tournament trying to, because if your opponent's pattern racking, what are you going to have a notebook and you're going to keep track of the patterns that they use? And then, and then even if you do, then it's like, by the time you have enough sample size to really have any evidence that they're pattern racking, the set's already over and you don't really have any evidence because all you're going off of is your own recollection at this point, the tournament director's not there to see it. It's like, it puts you in an impossible situation to defend yourself. And so, so some people just pattern rack and have an advantage. And I, so my whole point is Jesse, if you say pattern racking is legal, now, now, I understand that for you, it's so hard to consider a world in which you don't call foul on yourself as being anything other than wrong. But let me ask you this. If you played in a tournament where the tournament director had a meeting and said, guys, you can rack the balls whichever pattern you want, you're allowed to pattern rack. Then in that world, would pattern racking be allowed? Is that it, Or is that low integrity to pattern rack? Well, you see, now you make a good point because like specifically the bar table championships, right? They, I remember that they had this rule. Yeah. And I remember the same thing. Like I had a rough idea of about three, maybe four patterns that I knew I was going to pretty much do. And the idea was, is that, you know, I wanted to have the, the two or the, or the next ball after the, the, the one ball and then the eight ball right before the nine, right. To be at, in the top two balls because of the speed I was going to break them at. And, you know, anyways, so obviously when I needed to move the two and I couldn't pattern rack the two, eight, you up put top. The two on the wings. Exactly. Like said, yeah. And then put the three, eight up there. Yeah, yeah. And there was like three different patterns where you could pretty much keep it at the same pattern. Yeah. But not really, you know? So, I mean, that's, yeah. And like, I mean, I guess if somebody made an argument said, well, that's, that's just as bad. I mean, okay. I'm open to the discussion. Like, because I, to me, like I'm, I'm willing to admit fault there. Like, yeah. I mean, like the reason why I would say that like the best way to solve that would be, yeah, like when you go to play a, a tournament, you should just get a random draw sheet that shows you how you're going to rack the balls each time or, or for the entire match, both players. That would be the easiest fix for that. And both players either get a really easy pattern or they get a very difficult pattern that they have to break eight or nine times to try to run out. And, and that's life because that's not an area where I would like say I focused a ton of my energy on. You know, but it's like that's that's also not as clear cut as the idea that you kicked didn't actually hit the ball before you hit the rail. And, you know, absolutely that there's no reason that cue ball shouldn't be picked up and be put in your opponent's hand. I, I, I understand that it's certainly not. Well, you say it's not as clear cut. I don't know, man. I think that if they say no pattern racking and you start doing anything other than randomly throwing balls in the rack, then, you know, you're doing that. Uh, so I don't know that it's I mean, OK, but. 
what what I was what I guess I would say is I was trying to use examples of what rules I don't like. And I don't like rules that can't be enforced and rely on players honor system because then it, I feel like you're rewarding players for being dishonest. Um, and I don't, and I don't, I don't, I'm not saying I wouldn't act honestly because I try to hold myself to the same standards. You do. I would still be one of those players to give up the advantage to act with integrity. And I don't really necessarily care. I don't think that necessarily in most cases, it makes that big of a deal. I actually don't even, I don't, hold the cheaters responsible for their cheating. I don't get, when I see somebody like do something where it's like kind of unethical, I don't even get mad at the player. I get mad at the tournament director for allowing that even to happen. And so, so like, for example, like what you're just saying with the rack, uh, you know, so there's a lot of ways to solve this. You can say everybody can pattern rack. You can just post a rack per match. You can do a lot of different things to solve that. Um, but what I don't like is when they just say, don't do it, but that it's somehow it's impossible to enforce because then you've got players that do one of three different things. You've got one set of players that just randomly throw the balls in. You've got another set of players that kind of like kind of mostly randomly throw the balls in, but might make a couple of subtle improvements or, or have, you know, flip between a few different slightly beneficial patterns. And then you've got people that blatantly just use the same pattern every time. Like they're just, you know, asking somebody to pick a fight with them. And so, the, then the problem is, is that everybody's watching what everybody else is doing. And you've got some people that were randomly throwing all the balls in, but then they played a guy that was using the exact same pattern every time. And then they said something and it couldn't really be enforced. And their opponent was kind of laughing about it. So now they are bitter. And so now they want to start pattern racking. And it's like, we were playing this weird game where everybody's like trying to follow the rules, but then watching each other kind of cheat. And it's trying to figure out what the right you know road is for them to be integrity without being a complete sucker, because there are tournaments where that can make a big difference. So it's like, so I just think that those are bad rules. And I would rather just see them say, you can pattern rack. And that's what actually, that's what actually they concluded was the, the CSI, you know, the guys running that were like, uh, yeah, next year, we're just going to allow people to pattern rack because this is, you know, forget about, we, so the point is you can't think about how you'd like the game to be played. You have to think about how kind of like you can't make a rule saying a law saying no alcohol and think about how the world you'd like to live in where nobody drinks. You have to think about how it's going to actually play out. And it's like you can't just sit there and say, I would like everybody to rack randomly. And I think that's the right way for pool to be played. Great. How is it actually going to play out? And it frustrates me to no end to watch people make these idealistic rules that play out horribly in tournaments and then act like they're surprised. And it's just I, I just it's like these are the same people that pocket the one and then look around to see where the two ball is. Fair. OK, so. <laughs> You, you pretty much nailed there when you said, like, the rules that can't be enforced. So, to me, like, the idea with, with, with a rule of no pattern racking is it's the same concept as no, like, no soft breaking or, or yes. effort oh, to God. get force, right? Like the bathroom break. Oh, I yeah. <laughs> effort <laughs> to, like, effort for, like, a forceful break. Like, when you read rules like that, you already roll your eyes because you know that it's just going to be a, a total joke, right? And then they, they implement, like, the three-point rule, but then there's, like, like the U.S. Open, right? They used to have somewhere it was like three point past the side. Well, if it's a rack your own, you know you're going to make the wing ball. Otherwise, your opponent can have it. So it's like you're already on a free roll because if you don't make the wing ball, well, you're going to break dry anyways. So you, it doesn't really matter. And it's so easy to get two balls past the side, right? When rules like that are in place, that's a different scenario. And I think that that can be handled. Th that should be like looked at differently. The idea that the rule is that after you contact an object ball, either that ball or the cue ball needs to make contact with a rail. That's very clear cut. Like you're because if, if opponent does that, right. If they just, you know, if they quote poaching and get like a half inch short of the rail and uh, whatever, then 
your very next shot, right? Because there was no cameras on the table and they just refused to admit that they fouled. Your very next shot, why don't you just like literally tap the cue ball an inch and freeze them on the right behind the nine ball? And then they're like, well, obviously foul. You didn't even like hit it down the table towards the one ball. You'd be like, oh, nope, it got a rail. And I hit the object ball. Like, why not just call, do that? And then, yeah. like, and then be like, oh, by the way, you're hooked. I'm going to go call the ref. You know, like what? I mean, that there's like, there's a range of like, okay, what's like clearly pushed, you know, over the, over the line there. But when there's a distinct rule in place of like object ball, then that has to hit a rail or whatever, then that's something that you just don't, you, you just don't like try to cheat that. Okay. Right. Right. So, okay. Advantage play with gray area rules. That's a completely different concept to me. So I, I think that there's, again, in every example I gave about your opponents calling foul on you being at their responsibility in every situation, one of the conditions was, was they ask you, you kind of have to like tell the truth. Like even when I grew up, that was always the expectation. So I guess that if I could highlight a couple of my main points would be one, I think that it's about social norms, not about what's right and wrong. I think the things that we consider to be wrong can be right if that's the rules and that's what everybody plays by and everybody agrees to. And I think that things that we consider to be uh, right now, you know, or things that might be wrong in the standards in the future. Uh, and so, and then the other thing is that in general, I don't like rules set up where they're awkward to enforce and reward unethical players. I, I think that those are poor rules. I think rules should be set up to put everyone on a fair ground. And so that was the only thing about having your, your opponent's responsibility to call foul. Now, there was another, another interesting idea that I had, which is there's a lot of things that kind of come down to like, is it part of the game or not? So like, for example, you're up two to one on me. I win a rack. I forget to move my coin. And then I, I ask you, I said, Hey, I thought I was at, did I, I'm sorry. I thought I, I thought I was at two. I, am I it's two, two, right. Or if, if you stared at me and were like, oh, all right. You know, and you acted like you're uncomfortable with that or, or like, would you remind me to move my coin? Kind of, I guess the question, so like the question is, do you remind your opponent to move their coin if they forget to move their coin? Now, you could sit there and here's what I say is there's two, there's almost like two parts. You've got the game that you're playing that you're, that you're fighting about. And then you've got the rules that are outside of that game. So the way I think you and I play is that we'll fight to the death to try to win these games for each other. But if you won the game, you won the game. And I'm going to tell you, you won the game because like not letting, you know, like, like in other words, not letting you move your coin, not reminding you that you moved your coin is not part of the game. Now, if you're going to shoot the wrong ball, if you're shooting the six ball and the five falls still on the table, playing nine ball, that's part of the game. I might not say, Hey, Jesse, you're shooting the wrong ball. Like that's your responsibility. Would you agree with that? Is your responsibility to shoot the right ball? Yes. Okay. So then I might not stop you from shooting the wrong ball because that's part of the game. But if you forget to move your coin, keeping score is not part of the game. That's just keeping score within the game. And so like, there's, that's like, it's almost like there's a set of rules that apply to the game. And then there's a, then there's, then there's what we do outside of that, the game that's being battled over and keeping score. We have an, a gentleman's agreement that we're going to do our best to help each other maintain a current score while we fight each other within the rules of the game that we are willing to fight about. Right. Yeah. So there's a specific scenario. Again, I'm not going to mention the name of the, the opponent, but I know that you were there and saw the scenario play out. <laughs> I think you remember as I'm talking about like, I was the person that was keeping the score on the score sheet. And there was a, a really bad, like, 
you know, altercation with this, where that person was like more of like an old school type of person. I was just kind of like toss the coins up nonchalant, like whatever. We'll just kind of mark them and whatever, whatever. When, it get, when the score gets tight, we'll figure out whose break it is and, and change the score. Anyways, it, it reached a point where I was ahead in the set five to three. And oh, I remember it, now. it yep. was supposed to be my break. And oh God, I remember the this. person went up to the, they were going to rack the balls and they're like, they're like, no, it's my break. And I'm like, I'm like, no, I broke first. Right. And then they're like, yeah, but then they changed it. And they were like, but I'm up. They, they said that they were up four to three because the coins on the table were marked that they were up four to three, which I had never personally moved the coins on the table. That was just how they were sort of keeping their own score. When the, when literally there's a score sheet that we're marking X's on. And I, I assume that I was keeping the official mark of the table or of, of the, of the match, you know? So anyways, how this worked out is like, I, I was ready to fight this thing to death. And, and the person ended up basically trying to make me like seem like the bad guy in the situation, but a hundred percent, I was right. There was no chance I didn't have the score correct. And, uh, and, and so, so in that case, like I couldn't let that one go because I knew that I kept the score correctly. And the, the games were one were one. It had nothing to do with, I wanted to have the advantage in the set. It's just, that's literally what it was. I can't change the fact that I won five games and that person only won three. And the person was a great player too, but uh, it is what it is, man. Like, so, so in that case, you know, whatever. And if it had that person been ahead five to three and only had the, 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 the coins marked four to three and then be like, Oh, is it, is it like, I went up to rack the balls. You're like, no, nah, it's my break. I'm up four to three. I'd be like, no, you're up five to three. I won the flip. That's how I handle that situation. I would never try to be like, Oh, I guess you are up four to three. And like, you know, it's essentially like screw them out of a game. That's not what I'm going to do. So when I'm on the other side of that, I'm ready to fight it to death. Right. That's just right. how it is. No, it makes perfect sense. And I think that the idea is, is that, you know, it has to do with what you think is uh, within the bounds of the game versus not the game. I think there are some players that would let a game sleep or that, that, you know, don't let their player or their opponent mark a game if they slept it for a game. Um, because they consider that like the battlefield. They consider that part of the battlefield. And in poker, you know, I'll just say in poker, they look, and I had a couple other examples, like, you know, raking the balls. You know, it used to be that people used to rake the balls. Nowadays, if people start raking balls on you when you're playing a match, it's like, that's just not done anymore. It used to be done. And it used to be, not only, not only was it like, it was normal and it was actually part of the game was that sometimes you can see this ball, but then you wouldn't concede that ball. And they wonder how good they have to get, or you kind of like, you know, sometimes you could kind of be disruptive to their rhythm or, you know, you kind of distract them because they're wondering when you're going to start conceding or how come last time you break three balls and now you're making them shoot this eight ball and, and how, you know, why are they making me shoot this money ball? They gave me an eight, a tougher one last time, you know, so it used to be some gamesmanship when I grew up with raking balls. But then that was like considered to be bad. We're like, hey, man, we're sharking each other. It's not professional. We should shoot them all. So then they started making it normal to shoot them all. They had those be the rules. There's a one game penalty if you start conceding balls. And so now that's become the gentleman's rules. That's become our cultures that you don't rake balls on each other. But there was in the 90s, that was totally normal. So it's not that people were cheating back then. But back then, that was part of the game that you played was of raking the ball strategy. You know what I mean? So these are many, many things. And I have other examples. That I, we don't need to look at all of them, but there was like uh, taking breaks on your turn. It used to be, you know, you could take a break, a break on your opponent's turn and kind of, you know, ice them or something before a big game. Now it's like, no, you take a break on your turn because we don't want to be icing other people and all this stuff. And so now when I play people that don't know that and they take a break when it's my turn, I'm always like, 
it's always like weird. I'm like, man, you don't do that. So I just, my whole point is cultural norms change and that, and that there's part of the game. It's just like poker where you have angle shoot. Poker is a game of deception. Of course, it's okay to bluff. Of course, it's okay to, you know, misrepresent your hand strength or play your hand in deceptive lines, but it's not okay to hide your big chips. Like uh, Alex Turley, what was his name? Yeah, Alex Turley. <laughs> it's not okay to, uh, it's not okay to like, you know, angle shoot where you like, you know, act like you're, you, you know, act like you're calling, but then you put enough chips where it's like, oh, I have to raise or, or the other way around. You know, there's all these different angle shoots and it's like, there's like etiquette where you're not supposed to say, oh, I haven't looked at my cards yet. And then, you know, you actually have. So it's like, there's certain etiquette, even in poker, which is a game of deception. There's still etiquette about what types of deception are allowed and versus what types of deception are off limit. And that's my whole point is that I just wish people would see that this is, I mean, a lot of people listening are going to be like, well, you're just a cheater. It's like, no, I call foul on myself. That's the standard of today. I just think that two things. I think that our norms are what create right or wrong. I don't think that when it comes to pool rules, I think there's a lot of ways to play pool. And uh, and that as long as everyone agrees and plays by those rules, that the rules can be changed. And as long as everybody agrees and plays by them, that that, that can be right. And that, and that I also think that... Uh, in general, I prefer to see those rules set up to where, you know, it doesn't rely on honor systems and hard to enforce. And that's, I, I would prefer to see rules set up to where it doesn't disadvantage the honest players. But that all being said, in today's day and age, it's a mix. You have some inexperienced tournament directors, you have weird culture and all these things to where sometimes you get in these murky areas and then we're still going to do the right thing, even if that puts us at a slight occasional disadvantage. Um, I just... I just, I find it fascinating. And so I find it interesting to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Can I make one more point? On this topic? Yep. Okay. So you're familiar with turning stone. You've played the tournament multiple times. Yes. This leads into like one of the strangest rules that I have seen come up in pool. But anyway, so the way that turning stone works for anybody that doesn't know is unless it's changed since I last been out there, it's a big table nine ball tournament, but it's racked for your opponent. Correct. Still racked for your opponent. Okay. Yeah. So the strangest thing about like racking for your opponent is Obviously, if you're a knowledgeable person, when you lift up that rack, you know if the corner ball is wired or not. And you know if your opponent's knowledgeable, once they come and inspect that rack, they're going to know which side of the table to break from to, to make that, that wired ball. Uh, so it that's a tricky thing, too. Like, when you go to rack the balls, do you now rack them just a touch higher, knowing that they're going to sit in the, the place that makes it very difficult? Or not like there's a, like there's those, that inner moral system where and, and there's pattern recce too where if you can rack the two behind the nine you're more likely to create up and down movement yeah yeah so so for me like I really dislike tournaments like that because it 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 puts you in such a weird it's like then if you rack the balls like well, did you do them wrong because you didn't rack them six times until it was absolutely perfect the exact same way you would rack if you got to break these balls like there's rules in place in in tournaments like that that makes zero sense to me. Because it could all be solved by just making it rack your own and making it a very specific rule that you can't rub the ball. Or once you like let your fingers off the wherever the ball sit, that's how you have to do it, right? Or now they have like the template racks, right? That that takes a lot of that uh that you know, anyways. So that that's one side of that tournament I want to point out. And then this has now become a very common rule in professional level tournaments where conceding the money ball not only loses you that game, it also costs you another game. Right. For me. This has got to be, aside from maybe like when you're on TV, if there's like actual real like sponsorship money involved and, and that's something that's that, that means something to them, this has got to be one of the dumbest rules I've ever heard of 
like we went out to that professional tournament out in uh or whatever you want like the, the tournament went out to in virginia right virginia, yeah. my very it's first mass a tournament yeah right. <laughs> so my very first match that i played i was ahead on this guy like i think i was up like seven to two and I mean, no disrespect to him, but at this point in match, especially, he just had next to zero chance to win. I mean, I would have had to hang up like a bunch of 10 balls. He just wasn't a capable enough player to beat me from, from that being that, you know, far down the set. So what happened is he was like trying to run out on the, on that, that game. And he ended up like hanging up the six ball. And then I ran six, seven, eight, nine. And then I, the, the 10 ball was like nearly hanging. So he was just like, that's good. And I knew that when he said that's good, that I couldn't take that. I was going to shoot the ball, but that's where he took his tip and like, and knocked the 10 ball down to the other end of the table. Well, I was like, I was like, okay. I kind of looked at him and gave the arm. I was like, well, I was like, you're, you're really not supposed to concede games. Just so you know, that's what I told him. And I had zero intention on taking the extra game. I, I went down to start racking the balls and I racked them. And after I lifted up the, my break cue to kind of walk around the other end of the table, the ref came up and he's like, Hey guys, like the match is over. You can't concede the game. So, so the ref was the one that came in and enforced it as technically he should have. But for me, I didn't even think that was right because like, yes, that's a tournament rule. But I didn't want to enforce that. I'm the only person that could benefit from that rule. No, that doesn't affect how the bracket plays out. It doesn't affect any other person's match. It specifically just made it where I got an extra game for free for something that I didn't do work for. And my opponent really didn't make a mistake. He just made the decision that there's no chance I was ever going to miss that 10 ball. And and really, it has nothing to do with the spectators at all. Yeah. yeah. Aside from like, ooh, it takes away from a, an ounce of excitement. But it's just... That that rule again has just never made sense to me. It's and, a, it's a one of those rules where I think. Well, I think the okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Sure. And my other point of that was like going back to Turning Stone. I know this is something that happened a while back. The the year that Billy Thorpe won that tournament, there was a it was like a big thing on AZ or something popped up on Facebook where in the in the semifinal match, he actually lost to the guy because of that rule. He conceded the guy a nine ball to the guy, and then was supposed to lose the match. Now. Luckily for him, the guy had a level of integrity where he's just like, yeah, I'm not going to win the match and go to the finals that way. I believe it was the semifinal. Might have been the, but anyways, the point is the guy was like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. So even though the rule was that way, he's like, no, like, because I, from what I understand, I wasn't there. But from what I understand, like Mike Slug was like, yeah, that's a, that's a foul. That's a loss. You lose the match. And the guy was like, nope, I'm not taking it. We're playing the Hill Hill game. So then they played the Hill Hill game and Billy won, of course. And then the guy shook his hand, went on about it, and, like, let it happen. Now, that's the way that I think that that rule should play out if the rule's even going to be in place. Is like, at the end of the day, it should be up to the person who only directly benefits from accepting that ridiculous rule in the first place. Because, I mean, it's their tournament life on the line, right? Like, for do you see what I'm getting at? Like, like, a tournament director should not be able to come in at that point and be like, well... You conceded. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm going on too much. It, no, no, no. I think it's, okay. it's just ridiculous, man. So, okay, a couple of thoughts. One, you know, yes, there's a lot of goofy rules in tournaments and a lot of rules that set up controversy. I think part of the problem with this concession thing is that it doesn't feel okay. So, there's a big difference between a guy like getting pissed because he makes the six and scratches and they're like, like angrily breaking the seven, eight, nine in a poor sportsman like way. And a guy that's like, you know, sometimes conceding two balls and sometimes conceding one ball, you know, rack after rack, like it's some trying to head game versus a guy who just like 
makes the nine and scratches and then like doesn't make you spot it up and shoot it in. You know what I mean? There's a big difference. And so I think we all know the difference between a guy who's like poor sportsmanship sharky versus a guy who's just kind of like hung up a 10 ball and just kind of, you know, taps it in with a skew out of disgust. You know, like we know the difference between like a, like a disruptive concession versus a kind of an innocent concession. And it's hard to want to take a game penalty when the guy makes an innocent concession. And so I get that. But I think part of that too is because these rules have only been around so long. And so we're still like, we're still kind of like, it's still a little bit weird to us. Uh, the, the other one that this reminds me of is, uh, you know, those 10 ball tournaments where it was, you had to call the money ball. <laughs> there was like these clips of like, you know, like multiple players, like including Shane, I think bowed out of the tournament. Cause like they would like, they'd get on the hill and they'd be shooting the 10 straight in the side. And they would forget that they had to call the money ball. Even if they're shooting it straight in, they had to like call the pocket. And so like they would shoot the 10 straight in the side and then the ref would call foul and spot the 10 ball up and their opponent would gleefully be jumping up and down and <laughs> shooting the 10 in. And they just, the players that would do this would just get so disgusted that they would just like bow out of the tournament like i don't even want to play against guys that are going to celebrate and take that yeah so it's an awkward spot all I, all I know is for me i actually am a big fan of the no concessions rule i think that the vast majority of the time people start conceding balls it's because it's very disrespectful to their opponent like i don't want to sit there and watch you run them out and i i lost this game and you didn't win it i lost it i'm, I'm not going to let you sit there and think that you won it it was you have to i gave it to you so all this it's just a really negative bad attitude for the most part and i think you know what it's my, it's my tournament. I get to shoot the balls in when you start raking balls and making concessions. I just think it's poor attitude. And, and oftentimes it's either a bad attitude or it's deliberate sharking and, and I don't like it. And so, so very, very, very seldom does it get in play because it, it doesn't really happen that often because of that rule. So I actually like the rule because I don't like that type of the game. Uh, I think people should just, when they miss, they should just suck it up and sit down like, a, you know, and take it and, you know, let you run your balls out. And so I like the rule. Um, I think that saying it's your option, whether to enforce it, the only problem is if you say it's your option, whether to enforce it, then that puts a lot of people in really awkward spots where maybe it becomes awkward and uncomfortable for them to enforce it because all of a sudden, yeah, it's the rule, but most people don't enforce it. So you're being kind of, you know, you're kind of being a little, you know, snaky by even taking the game. It's like, no, no, no. We're just, not only is it the rule, that's the rule. You get the game. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You don't have to be the bad guy for calling it. Like the same way that if somebody kicks and doesn't get a rail, you don't feel bad about taking ball in hand. It's like you were supposed to hit a rail. You didn't hit a rail. It's not like one of those things. Well, you're supposed to hit a rail, but you know, I'm not going to take the cue ball on you this time. And then a lot of people don't take the cue ball there. And then all of a sudden somebody kicks and doesn't get a rail. You pick up the cue ball. They're like, well, I don't understand. Most people are okay with that. What's wrong with you? It's like, no, it's a foul. Don't do it. Okay. When you put it like that, <laughs> I mean, then, yeah, I would say I don't hate yeah. the rule when you put it like that. And to be clear, I don't concede balls when I go to tournaments like that. I mean, if you and I are messing around or, you know, if I'm. Well, you know, I can miss anything. <laughs> so, you know, well, there's, there's a very good strategic reason not to concede balls. Especially if you listen to our first podcast together. You That's correct. You'll story, know, all, uh, know all about yeah, that one. Yeah, I don't do it just because, well, yeah, anything can happen for one. And uh, I just, yeah, I let people finish there. Like, because I just don't want to get into any sort of, you know, controversy there. But yeah, I just think that there's a. My whole point with, with that specific rule was just that, you know, there are rules in place in tournaments that are definitely set up to, like, make it difficult on the players. And that, like, because, yeah, when you have stuff that's not clear-cut, it's just no good. I think tournament directors, I think we could say it would be nice if tournament directors were less idealistic about how they hope that things would play out and that they would instead talk to players and look at other tournaments that have run what, what are the controversies and then talk to the players and get input about like, 
which types of rules are best for both gameplay and for match play and like in like you know avoiding confrontation and cheating yeah yeah cool man well that was you know that was good so i enjoyed that conversation i feel good about it um i just wanted to kind of sort through some thoughts that were on my mind after going through that thread so uh i think that wraps it so i'll tell you what uh it's been a good pod so we'll we'll ship it off into cyberspace and see what y'all think uh thanks for tuning in and um yeah, we'll uh, we'll keep taking listener questions. Oh, one other thing is it's possible that Jesse and I might do a uh, a live stream at some point where we do some Q and A, uh, and also maybe uh, play like a challenge match against each other while we're doing the Q and A. So that might be coming up. We're trying to you know make sure that we've got the right setup to do that. Give you guys some notice so you know when that's going to be. We didn't want to step on the toes of the Moscow League Cup or anything. So, um, but anyway, we're gonna have some fun, and uh, we appreciate you coming along with us. Until next time, take care, Jesse. All right. See you later.